So two texts for today. Exodus 5, 3 through 18. It'll look familiar. And then Romans 9, oh, like 6 through 8, 14 through 24, 30 through 33. Tried to condense a little. All right, Exodus, Exodus 5. Then when they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, Now let us make a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. The king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And the Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. Same day the Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, that is why they are crying out. Let us go sacrifice to our God and make the work harder so that the people keep working and pay no attention to these lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out to people. This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather the stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, as just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told to make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. All right, then Romans 9, so 6 through 8, 14 through 24, 30 through 33. Well, maybe actually 4 through 8? No, no, 4 probably. The people of Israel. Theirs is adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants from the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children, on the contrary, It's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens those who he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say that the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay the same pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? What then shall we say? 
The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, obtained a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So, uh, Trey's camping this weekend, so I figured I'd save him the indignity of writing a sermon in a tent. Plus, apparently, he cooked some really good food. So I'd been doing uh, kind of examples of the Exodus motif in the New Testament uh, in places that I've been uh, subbing in, but I think uh, today, I'm gonna, uh, and next time that I uh, sub in, I want to talk about the two places in the New Testament where Pharaoh pops up. I thought one of the things that was great uh, about the sermon series that Trey's working on is he's do, has done such a good job of kind of presenting Pharaoh as one model of power, as one model of, I don't know, fake divinity, and then uh, Yahweh or God as another model of power. And we uh, had the uh, kind of episode last week over bricks and straw. There's like two ways that scholars interpreted it, but the basic outlines of the story and the implication of it are the same. So the people of Israel want to have something like Sabbath. They want to spend time going out to worship their God. And because Pharaoh's kind of an image of false divinity, he sees that as lazy and disobedient. So he forces them to take the same amount or make the same amount of bricks that their quota specifies, but he denies them straw. I, uh, you know, every once in a while you geek out. So straw was like their equivalent of rebar. Actually, mixing straw into the bricks made a big deal for the size of structures that the Egyptians can build. It's something that people have done for a while, but the Egyptians kind of really leaned into it because it made the bricks lighter. It helped extend the available clay, and it also made them stronger um, so that, you know, having that straw and those bricks was part of what allowed them to build all the big things that they wanted to build. So Pharaoh's doing one of two things here. Although, like I said, they kind of get to the same image of uh, false divinity. He's either playing the ultimate power move. It's like the ultimate show of his power to the Israelites to be like, now you have to work uh, twice as hard to make the same product. Um, So if they did have any time left in a regular day, they would have spent it running around Egypt trying to get some stubble from hay that was already cut down. So, you know, it's a demonstration of Pharaoh's cruelty and his kind of ultimate power over them. It's a sign that he's kind of arbitrary, and weirdly it's a sign that Pharaoh's kind of weak. Like, he wants to build grain storage and great monuments because he, you know, knows that he's mortal in some sense, and despite the fact that he may have believed in a vision of mortality, the main thing he wanted to do, and the Pharaohs before him wanted to do, was have a bunch of structures built up to point to how great they were. But, you know, it's also a weird kind of... Uh, an exemplar that for Pharaoh it's more about Pharaoh and his own insecurity than it is about getting the most monuments or the most grain storage. So, you know, why deny them the straw? I was thinking like if, uh, you know, like if Dan or Mason were Pharaoh, they'd implement a 360 review, <laughs> they'd double the quota and give people the straw and squeeze the most efficiency out of they could, out of them they could to build more bricks. So, you know, Pharaoh's weird here because Pharaoh's arbitrariness and insecurity about his own vision have have caused him to make a choice that 
you know, whether it is a display of power or not, is, uh, is something that actively undermines the thing that he'd like to achieve. The larger point, which I thought Trey was great on, was to show that Pharaoh and God are fundamentally different. So Pharaoh knows he's going to die someday. He's trying to build a legacy. That fear is so overwhelming to him that he's prone to fits of arbitrary rage because, frankly, it's all about Pharaoh. And in fact, if you remember uh, uh, Trey's kind of shtick on Ma'at, the Egyptian kind of vision of balance and harmony, Pharaoh's even violated that core (coughs) principle, right? Like in the name of securing his own place in history, he's given up on principles of balance and harmony in order to be as arbitrary and cruel as he can. Now, God, as presented here, on the other hand, is loyal, is consistent, and is interested in the good of God's people. God, in fact, actively desires relationship with the people of Israel. Come out into the desert. Let's have a barbecue. Let's have something like Sabbath. And of course, as Trey also pointed out last week, Sabbath is not simply about the question of rest. It's also about celebrating a victory. So this is God's kind of call to God's people that even in the midst of slavery, that there is a victory to be won in relationship with God. Pharaoh has no sense of Sabbath. There's never enough victory for him, so he never has a time to celebrate, and you can never allow your subjects to rest. Yahweh has this vision of Sabbath that is about understanding the quality and character of relationship with people and also being confident in the victory. So those are the, that, that, I, that is what I take to be the kind of underlying material for this account of Pharaoh in, as we see it in five. And then, like I said, this week we'll talk about Paul's use of Pharaoh in Romans. And then next camping trip, I'll do the other big one in the New Testament where there's a long treatment of Pharaoh. Anybody know it offhand? The stoning of Stephen. The stoning of Stephen as a, a long kind of recounting the history of Pharaoh. So, what's the deal in Romans? Okay, there are two things that Paul is worried about that draw him back to the Exodus story. And these are the stuff of some of the biggest fights in the context of the broader Protestant evangelical Christian church. Um, And I think, as you've heard me say before, they're kind of silly fights. But the kind of points here are, Paul is worried about the status of Israel and what its relationship is to the Gentiles. And two, this is like one of the key proof texts people point to for thinking about free will versus determinism. So God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The citation from Exodus is, you know, God is, uh, is uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart to make an object of wrath to, to express God's glory. And, you know, the other kind of uh, Uh, injunction Trey gave us last week is one of the things that makes it harder for us to read scripture is we don't think about what things mean in the kind of broad context of the story. We think the meaning for any specific claim is just kind of there. Just get to the specific number and read the sentence and you're fine. But I think Paul's doing something a little bit different with Pharaoh here. So we're going to talk about what Paul's doing with Pharaoh and then loop back to Exodus. So Paul starts with some stuff about how much he worries about and is sad about the people of Israel. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, like Paul has these very, I don't know, like drama queen moments. <laughs> you know, like I, I would rather cut myself off from Christ if I knew it would save the people of Israel. And like, Paul wouldn't do that. Paul knows that that's theologically messed up. He also knows it's impossible and that those aren't the alternatives, but whatever. He's a passionate rabbi. 
He wants to express how important Israel is to him, so he'll forgive him. But why is he mourning? Well, initially he's mourning because of what Israel's been given. And there's this kind of like beautiful opening uh, line in, in, in the, like, you know, starting in 4, Romans uh, 9, 4. They've been given a lot. And one of the things Paul's emphasizing there is it's, it's not clear why they deserve it, except for the fact that God chose them. Like, it's utterly arbitrary. Like the whole story of the Old Testament is the story of them messing this stuff up. And certainly the story of the New Testament is the story of the remnants of Israel messing it up. But God has chosen them. And so God gives them all these incredible things. So in starting in four, the people of Israel, theirs is adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. They've been made children of God. They have inherited access to divine glory, which in both the New Testament and the Old Testament is not just about, do you all remember when I did that sermon about glory and shininess? And it's like, glory was kind of about shininess, but really it's about like the weight or substance or character of God. So whenever you hear the term glory, it is also a kind of substitute for an encounter with the person of God. They've been given, uh, inherited like divine glory, the law, the experience of the presence in the temple, the fathers of the faith, the human lineage of Jesus. It's an impressive list, you know, like in my family, we got alcoholism, a penchant for depression and a slow metabolism. So, you know, by comparison, Israel's uh, got a pretty good, pretty good inheritance. God gave Israel all these things and yet they're consistently falling away. And so the question Paul wants to ask is, do Israel's failings indicate that God did something wrong? And so Paul says, no. Paul says, it is not as though God's word, this is six, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. That's, that's some revolutionary stuff. The initial covenant is based on basically a national ethnic blood tie. And here Paul is saying that the whole vision all along was not a national ethnic blood tie of a covenant between God and Israel, but something else, that people who are made children of the promise are the ones who inherit Israel. And so, you know, Paul's saying something here that is easier for us to hear if you've been in a Protestant church for a long time, but would have been quite shocking at the time. And as he, as he is wont to do, Paul makes this point that in the new covenant, it's not biological inheritance or bloodline like it, that matters, like it did to Pharaoh, like it did to even, even to Moses. Instead, for Paul here, Israel is a promise. To whom? To whom is Israel a promise? Because it can't be to the people of Israel. Right, that was the point of the preceding three lines. The immediate object of the promise is Israel, but the point Paul makes in Romans is that the extension of and the completion of and the fulfillment of that promise is in Christ. And more than that, what? That in Christ, God desires that all people be saved. Not everyone's going to take up the promise. So it still raises this question, but the character of the promise is different here. 
you know, not everyone grabs onto it. And this is the question that launched like a thousand debates about predestination when I first met Beth and we first started dating. But I, I talked about, I can't even remember what the question was, but it raised some theological questions. She's like, gosh, you know, you remind me of all these nerds at Houghton that would sit up all night with their hats and their overcoats probably and want to talk about free will versus determinism. You're not one of those guys, are you? Sorry. <laughs> what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now I want you to read that really closely in comparison to where Trey's about to get in Exodus. This happens later in Exodus, but usually Beth's, you know, especially determinism friends put on their hats and smoke their pipe and said, aha. God only chooses some people as an object of mercy. I mean, the argument could go a number of ways, but in Exodus 33, where this appears, this is not a quote about punishment. Does anybody remember where God says it? Trade us, so you don't count. Does anybody remember where God says this? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says it immediately before he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and shows him his glory. This is not something that's talking about who is excluded. The inverse is not true. Here it's God talking about the idea that just like the choosing of Israel, God's contact with the God's revelation of God's character is to a certain extent arbitrary, and that arbitrariness reflects God's sovereignty. But it's also noteworthy here to say that this is not about the question of the Old Covenant and who's in and who is out. Instead, this is about the question of those to whom God is willing to reveal God's self. And you have to give Paul full credit for the beautiful, full subtlety here. And he's a great rabbi, a great scholar of the law. I think Paul's a great rhetorician. You got to read the whole book and not the passage. The full point of Romans is what? That the full glory of Christ has been made visible to all people in the incarnation. And that's the logic behind this point that I think so many people have misconstrued into a bad reading of Romans 9. It's 16 says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy in, that, in, in what is that mercy present, God's act of choosing or extending the person of Jesus Christ to all men. It is through that lens that we can best understand the point that Paul is making in referring to Exodus. Here we go, 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom those who he wants to harden. Now the Greek word for harden is, anybody got a guess? If you want to know a good Greek term that you're trying to remember the name for, just think of the medical term, hardening. Scleros, yeah, scleros. And, you know, so like sclerotic, arteriosclerosis, all those things that my family loves. Anyway, uh, it means uh, to make inflexible. Now, how does God make Pharaoh inflexible? A lot of people interpret it as if God has literally reached his hand into Pharaoh's heart and magically hardened it. I think God hardens Pharaoh's heart by just following the basic psychological dispositions of the guy. God knows he's insecure. God knows that he sees any threat to his power, so what does he do? He unleashes plagues, and instead of Pharaoh being the kind of guy that's like, oh yeah, you're right, these plagues are probably 
because I was a bad guy. Pharaoh's heart hardens because of the encounter with the pl- plagues. He's kind of, God's banking on Pharaoh's basic psychology. I don't think that this is in the end a kind of basic free will determinism question like the way most folks have framed it because I do believe that God desires that all men be saved. I think that's the part of Romans. But God does know what will happen and does know how we'll freely respond. And to me, that's the point of this passage. The logic of Pharaoh here is that, you know, Pharaoh thinks you can coerce anyone into anything by strength of the will. The logic of God here is that God knows the hearts of men. God desires to be in relationship with them, and God can use them for God's purposes. But let's not forget the final purpose, which is what? The revelation of God's glory on the whole earth. 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist God's will? In other words, someone says, well, look, Paul, what about the objection that, you know, God decides anything? It's all about God's will. So why are human beings ever culpable? And listen to his answer here. The proper answer from the point of sovereign choice is that no one can resist God's will. But that's not how Paul rolls here. He doesn't take a side. He doesn't say, well, of course no one can resist God's will. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. What does he say? He emphasizes that we don't understand the totality of God's purposes or means, the means through which God achieves them. How else can you understand this? But you, who are a human being, Paul says, how can you talk back to God? So what is formed? Say to the one that formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter not have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and other pottery for common uses? What if God, through his choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? But what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy for whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us to whom he was called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles, the children of the promise. Now return back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he can coerce anyone into anything by the use of force. God knows us, and because God knows us, God sees us. Because God sees us, God uses us to achieve purposes that are higher than we know and where the outcome is different than we might expect. Like, not to put too fine a point on it, but what's the final disposition of Pharaoh? What happens to him? Yeah, he's dead in the Red Sea. Which a number of folks have pointed out as a fairly strong baptism metaphor. I mean, the idea is that God's purposes could be made towards any end here. And that God's purposes are not just about whether or not an individual heart is hardened, but that whatever God does, God does for the sake of making the glory of Jesus Christ apparent to everyone. And the incarnation is the completeness of that. So to me, this is a much... A lot of people put the emphasis on, well, God makes some pots nice and some pots bad. But the whole point of this is the beginning sentence, which is what? What the heck does a pot know about the potter's intention? How the heck can a pot figure out the logic or the means through which the potter is making it and extend (laughs) that to the difference between a created being and the creator of the universe? And I think, as we've said so many times before at Resurrection Church, that I think that he is pursuing all these things we know for the purposes of, of love for God's people, of love for God's kingdom. And those purposes are not only for God's good. He's Pharaoh. They're for the good of the people and the kingdom. And here's the thing. I think the only coherent response is to understand yourself as the pot. Because the whole point is that 
We are the pots. We can't understand God's means and purposes are incomprehensible to us. What seems like a contradiction from the standpoint of the pot is really what the Greeks would have called a paradox, or in really fancy terms, they would have called an aporia in our understanding of God. That's why, you know, one of the things that makes me ideologically and theologically a Lutheran is because Luther answers this question by saying, if you really read Paul and read the scripture and take that pot metaphor seriously, the only reasonable answer is to say that simultaneously God is sovereign and chooses everything, and to say, paradoxically, we have free will. And only God can resolve that one. The pot doesn't have the ability. That's why I think for all these things that people in the modern Christian church are talking about, like, gosh, you know, everyone's been fed this, like, spoonfuls of, we have to balance God's love and grace with the law. We have to balance a vision of rest with a vision of work. And, like, Christians are always talking about balancing. And my sense is balancing is pot logic. Balancing is how pots hold ideas in tension together. What if we start in an opposite way and say our language is limited and when we talk about an infinite, beautiful, all-powerful, omnipresent being who is made present to us as fully God and fully human, a paradox, a stumbling block itself from the very beginning that instead of trying to balance it out or reason it through that all we can do is observe the presence of Jesus Christ and instead of seeking balance say that both things must be simultaneously true and though that is a contradiction from the perspective of human logic maybe it's better for us to think about it as a productive paradox that happens when finite language bumps up against an infinite God. What then shall we say that the Gentiles and here's why Paul ends it. What then should we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by their work. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And it is the one who believes in him that will never be put to shame. Who is the ultimate stumbling stone? It's not free will or determinism. It's not predestination or choice. It's not love versus the law. The ultimate stumbling stone is the man God, Jesus Christ, who defeats death by dying and rises again so that we can achieve the elements of his kingdom, that we can be brought into relationship with him, that we can be loved, that we can be seen. And it's only by embracing that utter irrational paradox at the core of it that we can truly see and believe. That's it. The essence of the law at its core, and I think this is Paul's bigger point, the essence of the law at its core is that there are expectations and agreements and the people of Israel tried to follow them to the best they could. Pharaoh saw it with the bricks and so he just tried to enforce Pharaoh's law when it came to bricks. The people of Israel saw it too. They thought they could work their way to compel God's love because it's a contract and after all, or a covenant, and after all, if I do my part, you got to do yours, which is a weird understanding of the idea of covenant. But basically the people of Israel had come to a point where they thought that if they followed the rituals that would make them righteous, that God would have to be compelled to accept and to love them. And the point is that Yahweh changes the narrative of Pharaoh by saying it's not about coercion, that God is just and there is a law. And Jesus Christ incarnate changes the narrative of the old covenant to make it so that we are all invited to see and to love and to be known and to be in relationship with him. That's why it's so crucial 
and talking about this stuff to see the point from Colossians that I led with a couple of weeks ago. Why is it that we were set free? Why did Christ set us free? There's only one answer. Remember it? For the sake of our freedom. Because that's the kind of sovereign that Jesus Christ is. So that takes us back to power and to Pharaoh and even the Sabbath. The larger point here is that by some paradox that exceeds our own language and talking about it coherently, God wills things, but the Gentiles are also saved by their own belief. Pharaoh is a coercer and he doesn't care about his slaves. Yahweh, representing the old covenant, is a ruler who demands adherence to the law and is simultaneously embodying the person of Jesus Christ, the merciful, for whom every day is Sabbath, both rest and victory, and in whom all men are called to be beloved children of God. Amen. Questions or talk?